You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome to the history of the Netherlands, where we explore the events and characters that, over time, have transformed a swamp into an amazing modern marvel. Episode 43, The Pirate Den of Slice. When the Treaty of Montille-Letour was signed on October 30th, 1489, peace was formally arranged between the French, the Habsburg Ducal Government under Albert of Saxony in the Low Countries, and the rebelling cities of Flanders. Despite this, Philip of Cleves and Albert of Saxony seem to have read the treaty in very different ways and could not agree with one another about what it actually meant. Also, Bruges and Ghent, still the two most powerful Flemish cities, were not quite ready to accept the peace either, meaning instead of a peace, the situation in Flanders could better be described as a stalemate. Albert of Saxony would try his best to fix the economy of Flanders, while Philip of Cleves, ensconced firmly within the town of Slaus, would do his best to wreck it, living every kid's dream and becoming a pirate. This continuing unrest in Flanders would directly lead to an outburst of violence in Holland, where finally, after 150 years of on-again, off-again conflict, the so-called hook-and-cod wars would come to an end. Welcome back to History of the Netherlands. Yes, we are back. Yay! If you have been waiting patiently for this new episode, then we thank you wholeheartedly. We were recharging and re-energizing ourselves after a pretty long couple of years, and we are now ready for a full frontal foray into the flurry of philosophical fluctuations, fragmentary factionalism, frivolous fear-mongering, and fearsome fury, which will frequently feature in the forthcoming 1500s. To begin this episode, we first want to take a look at some of the reforms introduced by Albert of Saxony, aka Albert Animosus, in his attempts to re-establish order within Flanders. Albert proved himself to be a more politically and militarily capable regent of Flanders than Maximilian had been. Perhaps this is because he did not carry the weight of expectation nor hubris that Maximilian had. A few changes which he introduced almost as soon as becoming regent showed that he had a more adept understanding of socio-political complexities that were involved in ruling the Low Countries more anyway than the Habsburg prince had had. Foremost of these was that he attempted to create a body of advisors from within the states general, telling the respective territories to send deputies his way to serve on the board. It is unclear whether this advisory board ever functioned at full strength, considering the respective estates had to foot the bill to send their own representatives, but the intent was definitely there. When he wrote to the bailiff of Hanno, 
requesting deputies be sent from that province, he said that it was, quote, in order to provide daily with us for everything that might happen, for as long as our lord, the king, is absent, and to take notice of, aid, and conduct the affairs of the province together with the deputies of the other provinces, end quote. In other correspondence, he said that the reason for having an advisory board, which he claimed to be Maximilian's idea, but which sounds pretty un-Maximilian-like, was so that, quote, the estates will know and understand that we wish them to be informed of everything, end quote. This really cements the idea that the entire crisis that had erupted following the death of Charles the Bold had definitely served to enhance the reputation, the role, and the importance of the States General in a fashion that would become extremely important for the future direction of the Netherlands. The idea of having them send advisors displayed Albert's magnanimity towards them and was a definite change of tack from the days of the Duke just riding roughshod over them. When Holland failed to send deputies to him in May 1489, he gave them a good old telling off, but in doing so, he told them that he required the cooperation of the advisors from the different estates to make up for his own shortcomings in understanding the functional details of low country politics. He told them, quote, as you can well imagine, and seeing that we do not know the nature of these provinces, we cannot conduct by ourselves, and we have never desired nor do so now to conduct the said affairs other than by your advice and judgment, end quote. Among the affairs that he had to bring resolution to, the issues of Flemish insurrection and French aggression were foremost on his list. In a long-term sense, however, the most pressing problem was the economic devastation wrought by the decades of war and revolt, but also by Maximilian's manipulation of the currency in circulation in Flanders. You may recall from episode 41, he had raised the seigneurial tax on silver after it had been kept stable for over half a century up until then. Maximilian had done this without consulting the states general after they had refused to pay him an aid to help fund his military expenditures. By putting more base metal into each coin that was minted, less silver was used in their production and could thus handily go into the ducal coffers, basically skimming it off the top. This had been done in the past by Philip the Good and Charles the Bold, but never to such a dramatic extent as under Maximilian. In his essay, titled Debasement of the Coinage and Its Effects on Exchange Rates and the Economy in England in the 1540s and in the Burgundian Habsburg Netherlands in the 1480s, which, as you can tell by its catchy title, conducts a meticulous post-mortem into the manners and minutiae of the maelstrom of monetary mayhem in the Middle Ages, historian Peter Spufford goes into this in much greater detail than we ever could. But basically, whereas Philip the Good and Charles the Bold would respectively make about 240 and 500 Flemish pounds groat per year by doing this, in 1488 alone, Maximilian raised 19,000 pounds groat from his mints by the debasement of the coins. This led to grave inflation, with Flemish coins losing 66% of their value compared to Rhenish florins in the space of just over 20 years, with most of that happening in the latter years 
of the 1480s. In addition, there were skyrocketing food prices, the price of wheat doubled between 1487 and 1489, and the price of rye tripled in the same period. To add to the economic entanglement was the fact that Ghent was still minting its own coins, Koppenholz. Albert recognised that all of this caused, quote, greater damage than the war, end quote. On December 14, 1489, a monetary ordinance was passed which was intended to remedy this situation. In contrast to Maximilian, Albert of Saxony and his close ally Engelbert II, the Count of Nassau, produced this after months of negotiations with the States General, and the resulting agreement was very much in favour of the nobility and the clergy. Big surprise. Instead of gradually combating inflation, the ordinance basically tried to wind the clock back to the last years of Philip the Good's reign and made all the old coins which had been made during the debasement years worth one-third the value that they had previously been. As Peter Spufford writes, quote, The accompanying regulations dealt with the valuation of debts and obligations incurred at various dates during the debasement period since St. John's Day in 1487, but lumped together all obligations entered into before that date, even though the coinage had been changed a number of times between 1467 and June 1487. The rates given were lopsidedly and decisively in favour of creditors and those who were in receipt of sums fixed in money of account. An annuity of £10 groat, which could have been met by payments of 40 Andrews Golden early in 1487 and by payments of only 20 Golden in that second half of 1489, was now reckoned to need payments of 60 Golden. End quote. So, great. Just before Christmas, in 1489, those debts you needed to pay off suddenly became three times bigger than you had expected. As 16th century Flemish historian Emmanuel van Meteren wrote of this, quote, No sooner was the rumour of the intended alteration of the coin spread abroad than the unwanted sight was seen of debtors hurrying to their creditors with bags of money insisting upon being allowed to pay their debts immediately while the creditors carefully concealed themselves from the sight of their debtors to avoid their offers of payment, end quote. Although this is delightful to read about, it must have been less delightful to live through. The following years would be filled with legal disputes between debtors and creditors as they tried to figure all of this out, and the state's general would continue fiddling with the currency until 1496, when a stable coinage would finally be reached. This intervening period of uncertainty, however, led to the bankruptcy not only of many individuals, but also of entire towns, such as Amsterdam, Dordrecht, Leiden, Harlem, Lofer, Deest, Leer, Brussels, Den Bosch, Bruges, Ninova, Holst, At, and Sintrauden. So, yeah, it wasn't just Flanders. Things weren't great all over the place. Another problem facing Albert of Saxony was the issue of what to do about Philip of Cleves. As you will recall from the end of the last episode, Philip of Cleves had been forced to get out of Brabant as the tides of war turned against him and he holed himself up within the walls of Slaus. Although he had formally agreed to the Peace of Montil-le-Tour, which had brought an end to the Flemish Revolt, 
Philip remained in close contact with Jan van Koppenhol in Ghent, as well as with the city of Bruges. Both of these towns had also agreed to the peace, though had not yet formally submitted to the ducal government. On the day upon which the monetary ordinance was announced, Philip of Cleves paid a personal visit to Bruges, and the next day he went to Ghent. Given that he was pretty much controlling the seas around Zeeland with his navy and his base at Slaus, the merchants of Bruges especially were somewhat at his mercy to ensure their trade would be able to continue. At the end of January 1490, Bruges opened its gates to Engelbert von Nassau and submitted to him on behalf of Albert of Saxony, while Dummer, located between Bruges and Slaus, submitted to Albert of Saxony in person. Ghent, on the other hand, just stubbornly refused their entry. In the spring of 1490, ambassadors representing Albert of Saxony appeared at Slaus to speak with Philip of Cleves and to bring into effect the terms of the Peace of Montil-le-Tour. Despite having agreed to the peace treaty, however, Philip of Cleves was not going to just humbly lay down his arms to the German armies. He had not been defeated militarily, and situated as he was behind the thick walls of Slaus and in total control of the naval arena, he was basically untouchable. Molinet outlines the details of this meeting, though he gets the chronology wrong, placing it in 1491 rather than correctly in 1490. Albert of Saxony made two key demands of Philip. The first was that the city council of Slaus be replaced with people more amenable to the ducal administration, to which he agreed. The second demand was that Philip should hand over control of the city and its castles to Albert of Saxony. If they had been hoping for a simple, righto, here you go, they were very sorely mistaken. Molinet writes that Philip of Cleves began his response with, quote, I am very dumbfounded by the words that are being dictated to me at present, end quote. He then went on to tell the ambassadors that he had been sent word from Charles VIII, the King of France, that he and Engelbert of Nassau had agreed that Slaus was to remain under Philip's control, quote, until the arrival of the two kings, end quote meaning Maximilian and Charles VIII. After this, he launched into a lengthy rant, explaining once again the sequence of events which had led to his swapping places with Maximilian inside Bruges and swearing to defend the peace against anyone who broke it. Philip of Cleves had stuck by all of his oaths, whereas Maximilian had proven that he could not be trusted to stick by any promises he had made. As George W. Bush once most coherently said, Fool me once, shame on, shame on you. Fool me can't get fooled again, end quote. <laughs> Philip of Cleves argued that instead of being punished for his actions, he should actually be getting rewarded by Maximilian for everything he had done, which is extremely ballsy. It is pretty clear that Philip of Cleves' intractable sense of honour was going to remain a rather large spanner in the ducal cog. In his biography of Cleves, Ada Fowl humorously points out that at the end of these discussions, Philip tried to demonstrate his good intentions to the Duke of Saxony by giving him a living lion. Sorry, I'm not going to just surrender and obey, but here you go. 
have a lion. A couple of weeks after these failed talks, another embassy was sent to Philip of Cleves, this time from the leading citizens of Bruges. They too tried in vain to get Cleves to depart from Slaus, but the stubborn nobleman continued to stand his ground for much the same reasons as outlined before. He wanted to be ensured of the lands and titles, most importantly control of Slaus, that he had held before the conflict with Maximilian had begun, and he wanted to be guaranteed payments which he was owed due to these titles. The merchants of Bruges now found themselves in the unenviable position of being stuck between a rock, which is to say Philip of Cleves' obstinance, and a hard place, being once again under the control of the Habsburg ducal government. As Joey Spikers writes in his essay on this topic, quote, in the following months, Philip's garrison at Slaus and that of Albert of Saxony at Dummer ensured that, whichever side the city was on, its connection to the international waterways was hampered, end quote. With its trade strangled by opposing hostile forces, Bruges was in a lose-lose situation, which would make it very difficult for them to keep the peace treaty which they had only just agreed to. But, Considering that this whole conflict had begun when they opportunistically kidnapped the King of the Romans, Maximilian, and that Philip of Cleves had done them quite the solid by subbing himself in to defend them, it's difficult to feel particularly sorry for the power brokers of Bruges at this stage. After several more failed rounds of negotiation attempts, Philip of Cleves became convinced that diplomacy was useless, and instead he decided to turn to violence. On the 12th of June, 1490, he sent a messenger to Ghent to issue a feta brief to Adrian Fulane, the Lord of Rassigam. We mentioned feta briefing in episode 39. This was basically a letter that one knight or city would send to another, renouncing peace between them and telling them to expect imminent violence. Philip was irate about Rassigam's involvement in the negotiations of the Treaty of Montil-le-Tour. Rassigam had been intimately involved in the rebellion against Maximilian in Ghent, and Philip of Cleves had fully expected that Rassigam would defend his interests in Tour. All of a sudden, however, Rassigam had begun pushing for peace with the Archduke. Philip believed that Rassigam had been bribed by Maximilian to jump ship and accused him of doing everything he could to be a hindrance to Philip's claims and honour and having done the opposite of all that he had promised to do. Philip even suggested that Rassigam had been involved in an assassination plot against him. In Philip's eyes, Adrian Fillane was, to put it simply, a traitor. And in this letter, he wrote that, quote, Henceforth he beware of himself and of his own, for where he could find him, he would kill him. End quote. The messenger passed this letter to Rassigam at the Ghent Town Hall, in front of the bailiffs and the aldermen of Ghent, as well as Engelbert of Nassau's secretary. Rassigam is said to have read the letter thoroughly, then openly questioned whether Philip of Cleves would actually have the temerity to follow through with this plan. With the benefit of our kind of hindsight, it seems pretty strange to question the conviction of a man like Philip of Cleves, who had shown pretty convincingly over the last year that he was, if nothing else, a man of his word. The messenger is said to have replied that, quote, his master was not in the habit of threatening people if he didn't mean it, end quote. 
which is a very 15th century way of saying, uh, what do you reckon? Probably somewhat perturbed by this response, Rassigam departed Ghent that evening under the protection of a bodyguard of 14 soldiers, and he headed back to his castle. This was not a bad call, but on the way, they were confronted by a group of eight of Philip of Cleves' men who had been told by the Lord of Slaus that if they failed to carry out his plan, they were to never appear before him again. Rassicum's bodyguards decided that the only bodies they actually wanted to guard were their own and ran away, leaving Adrian Philane, the Lord of Rassicum, to have 17 vengeful holes poked into his body. Then, with a true sense of chivalric theatre, his attackers draped his body in black velvet and left it outside of his wife's house in Ghent, illuminated by eight torches courtesy of Philip of Cleves. And to think that only a few hours earlier, Brassingham had legitimately asked whether the Lord of Slaus was a man of his word. From this point, Philip of Cleves decided to wage a piratical war along the coast of Flanders. He issued letters of mark, which are basically instructions for people to fill their boots a pirating against any hostile ship. These he sent to a bunch of Danish warships, which he had brought into his service. Very quickly, the waters around Flanders became inhospitable to any and every vessel that wasn't under the protection of Philip. Any goods which were on their way to Flanders would be captured by roving pirates, brought to Slaus, and then put up for sale there. This war made Philip of Cleves a lot of money, but it also made him a lot of enemies up and down the North Sea coast as he greatly disrupted the flow of trade goods upon which the economies of the whole area depended. The only way skippers could ensure that they would not fall victim to the pirates was to sail under the escort of Philip of Cleves' own navy or that of Franz van Brederode, the young Hook nobleman who Philip had named as the Stadthalder of Holland. Speaking of skippers, that brings us to... Bet you didn't know that was Dutch. Well... That being said, if you didn't realize this was Dutch, perhaps you should have, because boats and Holland are pretty synonymous with one another. The English word skipper comes from the Middle Dutch word skipper, meaning a person who controls a ship. In fact, there's a beloved and adorable Dutch children's game that involves singing a song, which very easily could be about this period of Philip of Cleves' career. It goes... Which basically means, Skipper, can I sail over? Yes or no? Do I have to pay a cent? Yes or no? Yes, that's right. No big surprise. Dutch children games involve negotiating tolls, which should tell you a lot about low country culture. So there you go. Skipper, bet you didn't know that was Dutch. And I bet you didn't know we are going to leave Philip of Cleves there for the moment, safely sequestered in his pirate den of Slaus. It is to the fortunes of the young Franz von Brederode that we will turn next after we sail across the horizon of this upcoming ad break.
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to the welcome back. We spoke about Franz Front Brederode last episode when we were discussing the Hook and Cod conflict, which had reignited in Holland and Zeeland. We skipped through this story quite a bit last episode as we were more concerned with Philip of Cleves. So let's go back a bit and fill in a few of the gaps that we left behind. A lot of the details known about this conflict come from the writing of Cornelis van Alkemade, an 18th century historian who wrote a book, the title of which translates to Rotterdam Heroics under the city guardianship of the young Sir Franz van Brederode. In November and December of 1488, Rotterdam and Vorde were both captured by different and only loosely aligned groups of Hook partisans. Vorde was captured by Jan van Montfort of Utrecht Civil War fame. Rotterdam was taken by a group of Hook partisans who had sailed to Holland from Slaus with the young noble Franz van Brederode at their head. From Rotterdam, they set about trying to bring more cities, towns, and villages under their control. This included setting fire to the towns of Schoenhofer and Delfshaven, which left the citizens of those towns incredibly annoyed, by the way, a state of being that would come back to bite the Hook rebels in the backside. Other leaders in this uprising were Brederode's brother and his cousin, as well as a man called Jan van Naldweig. In late March 1489, they set off to capture the town of Gertraudenburg, with a fleet of 17 ships and a force of around 800 men. According to van Alkemade, they stole up towards the gates of the water-encircled town and, led by Naldweig, stormed the gate with axes and with the masts of their ship, which they used as battering rams. They had support from people within the walls and, with their help, managed to break into the city and push their way up into the centre of town. So now, Gertraudenberg was also under Hook control. Two weeks later, the Hook army set out from this new stronghold and they stormed into the area to the south, towards Breda. Along the way, they marauded through the countryside, ravaging farms and villages. The Drost, or the Bailiff, of Breda did his best to counter this aggression, managing to capture some of the culprits, whereupon they were taken into Breda and beheaded. According to Van Alkemade, there was a strong possibility of a treaty between the Hawks and the ducal government of the region, but this disintegrated, as word arrived that Albert of Saxony was on his way to give the attackers a good old-fashioned spanking with Gertraudenberg, the first city on his Hook hit list. It is difficult to say whether this bit is true, but by the end of April, they had given up on holding Gertraudenberg and headed back to Rotterdam. By June 1489, Jan van Egmond III, the Maximilian-appointed Stadthalder of Holland, had encircled Rotterdam and laid siege to it. It was not long before the city faced serious food supply issues and subsequent starvation. Brederode, who I probably don't need to remind you, was Philip of Cleves-appointed Stadthalder of Holland, 
responded in Rotterdam by calling the town's citizenry together in a call to arms of sorts. They would all need to participate in going out and obtaining provisions. On the 3rd of June, a fleet of around 40 ships was assembled under the leadership of Jan van Naldwijk and departed Rotterdam, managing to evade the blockade. They sailed eastward up one of the great branches of the River Maas and soon turned onto another river called the Lek. Where they did this, by the way, is right next to a polder that had recently acquired the name Kinderdijk, which will one day be globally famous and far, far more renowned than the events that are about to unfold in our story. Anyway, by the early light of the next morning, they had arrived near the town with the delicious-sounding name Lekokerk. This they intended to raid. However, their departure had been noted by their cod enemies, who controlled most of the towns and had the backing of the government. Word quickly spread between towns like Gouda and Dordrecht, Schiedam and Schoenhafer, all of which contributed towards a fleet of their own. This armada then set out at around 2 o'clock in the morning, following Van Naldwijk and his Hook Navy up the River Lek. They came into each other's vicinity between Lekkerk and the town on the opposite bank called Strafekerk, and the Cod Navy introduced themselves when one of their six warships rammed into a 40-man rowed vessel, sinking it and dooming its men to a drowned demise. Several hours of fighting soon saw the Hooks walking down Struggle Street, or more in line with the context of this story, floating down the River of Regret. The wind was blowing them northeast towards the town of Schoenhofer, which, as mentioned, they had set fire to the previous year. The Schoenhoferners had not forgotten this, and they came screaming out of their town to attack the hooks from behind. Encircled, exhausted, and having lost several hundred of their number, Naldweig and his hook navy were defeated. He managed to escape, along with several hundred others, and they found refuge in one of the few remaining Hook strongholds, the town of Montfort, before they could make their way to sneak back into Rotterdam. Inside Rotterdam, the food situation was now so dire that another attempt had to be hastily arranged to resupply the starving city. Late at night on June 17, 1489, Jan van Naldwijk set off with another fleet with 1,200 men, heading for the Hollandse Eisel River, heading northeast from the blockaded city. They met secretly with a force of men from Vorder, who provided them with much-needed foodstuffs. On the way back, however, just near the town of Mordrecht, they were met with an even more secretly hidden, and much larger, Cod and Ducal Navy, supported by Austrian mercenaries. They had somehow got the inside tip that this food retrieval mission was underway and they managed to set up a devastating ambush, suddenly appearing out of haystacks and barns and houses and completely catching the hooks by surprise. The resulting battle lasted around five hours and was a truly terrible defeat for the hooks. A bunch of their leaders were killed, Jan van Naldwijk was captured and only about 300 of the 1200 original managed to return to Rotterdam. The news of their defeat ended whatever slim chance Franz van Brederode had of keeping the fighting spirit alive in Rotterdam. On the 23rd of June, Brederode and the remaining hooks 
were permitted by Jan van Egmont III to leave the city, so long as they left, quote, all the necessities of war behind, end quote. So it was that last episode we saw Brederode limp off with a sad and hungry little fleet to Slaus in June 1489, where Philip of Cleves provided him succor, allowing the defeated Hook partisans to lick their wounds and regroup. Okay, so with that little explanatory diversion out of the way, let's get back to where we are now in the Philip of Cleves story and how all of this ties together. Having refreshed and recharged under Philip's protection in Slaus, Franz von Brederode was now right in the center of the pirating action. His ships spent the best part of a year just roaming around the seas of Holland and Zeeland, terrorizing any other vessel they found and escorting them, voluntarily or not, to the pirate then of Slaus. This was, like we said earlier, having dire consequences for the city of Bruges. No matter which side of the conflict between Philip of Cleves and the ducal forces Bruges chose to be on, their access to the sea was doomed. If they sided with the ducal forces, Philip's pirate navy would blockade the waterways. If they sided with Philip, Engelbert of Nassau and his powerful armies were in Dummer. Remember that Dummer is right between Slaus and Bruges, so this also meant Bruges would be cut off from all the sources of its riches and its markets. There was also rising discontent within the city as food prices had gone through the roof. Supplies were running low and incomes within the city had plummeted due to the already existing economic hardships now exacerbated by Bruges' blockaded position. In May of 1490, an embassy of Bruges' leading citizens departed desperately to the ducal court at Mekela to plead with Albert of Saxony, asking him to remove the garrisons from Dummer. In response, Albert of Saxony remained as obstinately defiant as Philip of Cleves, remarking that he would not take his armies out of Dummer until Philip had evacuated from the two castles and town of Slaus. Albert of Saxony then further compounded their misery and regret for making this trip by demanding that Bruges implement the monetary reforms of six months ago, which, remember, had basically devalued the currency by two-thirds. Oof. That plea for help backfired badly. Bruges then sent ambassadors, including their sheriff, to Slaus to try and negotiate an arrangement with Philip of Cleves to get supplies into the town, but along the way, they were arrested by Engelbert of Nassau's men from Dummer. At this point, and this moment cannot be understated in the history of the Netherlands, there was so much discontent within the rank and file of Bruges' lower class that a bunch of aldermen and the cream of Bruges' society, in fear for their life, decided that enough was enough, and they simply bailed. Forever. Bruges, now in the hands of all those discontent lower classes, found itself in a popular revolt against the Habsburg ducal government. Who could have seen that coming? And we are going to tell you all about it, but for now, we are going to resist every urge we have to talk about yet another Flemish revolt happening within the context of a still ongoing Flemish revolt that we're still talking about, and we're going to put Bruges to the side. But don't worry, we will get into it in the next episode. So with things heating up again, Franz von Brederode took a fleet of 38 ships out of Slaus and they sailed into the Zeeland Delta 
intent on continuing the hawkish harrying of Holland and Zeeland. They raided the islands of Overflake and Dauphaland before threatening to attack Dordrecht. Jan van Egmont III, the Stadtholder of Holland, decided that he needed the big guns of the Ducal Army to help deal with this situation. In June, he was able to persuade Albert of Saxony to head into Holland with an army and put an end to the Hook Uprising under Jan van Montfort, who had been causing all sorts of problems with his occupation of Vorder. Instead of targeting Vorder itself, however, Albert of Saxony intelligently decided that the better option was to go and lay siege to the town of Montfort, where Jan von Montfort's wife, Wilhelmina van Naldwijk, defended the town. With Albert of Saxony back in Holland, Jan van Egmont now had the opportunity to assemble a fleet to go and put an end to Franz van Brederode for good. On the 23rd of July, Egmont and his larger navy were able to confront Brederode in the Brouwershafen Hut, a tight sea channel near the town of Brouwershafen. Despite Bravely resisting the attack, Brederode's fleet was doomed when the tides dropped and 16 of their ships ran aground. They desperately tried to continue the fight on land, but Franz von Brederode was shot in the knee and captured. At this moment, any chance of this hook uprising continuing with any success dissolved. Jan van Naldwijk and nine other ships were able to remain afloat and they fled back to Slaus where they would rock up on the 28th of July, 1490, in a disheveled heap. As for Brederode, he and the other several hundred captives were taken to Dordrecht, where they were paraded through the streets while people threw abuse and detritus at them. He was then locked up in a tower called the Puttokstora. There's an amazing painting that captures this scene that we'll put up on our website, of course, historyofthenetherlands.com. But tragically, for this young nobleman, before he could be tried for his treason, Brederode succumbed to his injuries and died on the 11th of August, 1490. This turn of events was a slap in the face for Jan van Montfort and his hook occupation of Vorder, which was now the last real hook stronghold. According to Joey Spikers, after four months of siege, Montfort's hometown, which was being defended by his wife, was finally no longer able to hold out against Albert of Saxony, when an enterprising farmer, helping the ducal government, did the Duchess thing possible, and redirected the waters which fed into the town's moat, thereby draining it. With the fall of Montfort, and aware that there would be no further support, assistance or reinforcements coming since the heavy loss at Brouwershafen and the end of that siege, Montfort surrendered to Albert of Saxony on the 24th of August, 1490. Montfort was made to kneel before Albert, bareheaded to beg forgiveness for his crimes. But once again, somehow, he was dealt with relatively leniently. Montfort dropped his claims to the title of Lord of Pumeran, Pumerland, which had been given to Jan van Egmont anyway, and which for him had sparked the entire conflict, he was, however, allowed to retain his ancestral lands. So, yeah, go figure. The Chronicle of Naldwijk quotes the ceremony. Quote, Lord, so far you have signed calling yourself the Castellan of Montfort. The city is now in our hands. We give it back to you. And from now on, sign Lord of Montfort. End quote. 
Despite being allowed to keep the city, however, Montfort was required to demolish its walls, and he couldn't rebuild them for a whole 10 years. He was also to have an army from Holland garrison the town with the permission of the Bishop of Utrecht, David of Burgundy, who he had tried to supplant years before. With all this, though, the Hook and Cod Wars in Holland were finally done and dusted after nearly 150 years of on-again, off-again eruptions. Before we absolutely consign these conflicts to the chapters of the past, however, let's just have a recap of what they mean for the history of the Netherlands. Perhaps the most important lens to look at them through is, as historian Martin Leifer put it, that in the Hook and Cod Wars, quote, contemporaries describe the conflicts as feuds of the nobility and not as a war, end quote. There had been several phases and major events throughout the succession crisis of the 1340s between William V and his mother, the plight of Jacqueline of Bavaria in the 1410s, trying and failing to stave off the ambitions of her powerful cousin Philip the Good, Duke of Burgundy. There were the Utrecht civil wars from the 1450s and into the 1480s, and then this recent phase under the stewardship of Franz von Brederode and his allies. Each phase was different from the other, as they occurred over the course of a very transformative century and a half. The societies in this region changed drastically in those 150-odd years. The first version of the Hook and Cob Wars took place before the Black Death. And by the way, if you are looking for our episode on that occurrence, the beginning of the Hook and Cod Wars, then you are looking for episode 15, Fueling the Flames of Frisian Freedom. You won't find a lot of detail on the original struggle between William V and Margaret of Bavaria, behind whom the original factions first formed and came to be identified as Hook or Cod. In that episode, we dedicated a whole paragraph to it having chosen rather to focus more on the plight of Frisians in their own comparable, correlated, and contemporary conflict. However, without wanting to be too braggadocious, it is pleasing to look back at what we said back then about the upcoming Hook and Cod Wars before we started to bring them into our narrative. Yes, I am going to quote myself. Quote, the underlying issues that will fuel the Hook and Cod Wars are pretty much the same as what we saw cause the eruption of violence in Flanders, being the Battle of the Golden Spurs at the beginning of the 14th century. The forces of urbanization, growing trade wealth, and the demand of town citizens for rights had spread into Holland. Different groups and factions had emerged who would ally themselves with whatever other parties they saw as sharing their interests. End quote. We feel pretty comfortable sticking by that assessment and feel that it holds up for the entirety of these conflicts, even as the main players and their differing dynamics and levels of power change throughout. At the beginning of it, the Hooks were the establishment, and by the end, the Cods were the establishment. And towards the end of this conflict, many people in Holland had become completely fed up with the whole thing, definitely with the partisan identities of the factions. This is probably best illustrated by an ordinance of the Amsterdam City Council that they made on December 26th, 1481. This ordinance made it illegal for anyone to say, Thou art a hook, or 
Thou art a cod. We can only imagine how awful the political discussions must have been over Christmas dinners in Amsterdam 1481 for this to have been deemed necessary the next day. But despite this particular case, these identities still lingered in Hollandish culture for long afterwards, particularly in an expression used to describe an atmosphere of tension and conflict. If you are in a situation where things seem uncomfortable and on the verge of breaking into a fight, like Christmas dinner, then het gaat er hooks en kabeljaus aan toe. It's about hooks and cords. So with that, we will leave this chapter of Dutch history behind and for this episode, leave things where they sit. Philip of Cleves is the pirate prince of Slaus. Bruges is back in revolt. France still exists and so is therefore still an existential threat to everything. The English king, we haven't touched upon this, but he's just been sitting there keeping an eager eye on it all from across the channel, wondering where he's going to sell all his wool. And in Holland, even if the hook and cod conflict is apparently over, the underlying issues behind it, urban power dynamics, lingering feudal social structures, and the rise of mercantilism still very much remain with us. A lot of those issues will come to bear further north in Holland as the bread and cheese folk make their way onto the scene. But that, ladies and gentlemen, and hooks and cods and everyone in between, is for another time and for another episode of History of the Netherlands. Thanks so much for listening to History of the Netherlands. This show would not be possible without the support of our amazing Patreon backers who kindly chuck some money in the tin that keeps this podcast running. If you want to become a signatory to our great privilege of Patreon, then go to patreon.com slash history of the Netherlands, which is what these magnificently meritorious people have done. Petra, thank you so much, Petra. You are mighty. You are the one and only Petra. It makes me think of the mighty number 23. Thank you very much, Jimmy Jordan. Clay Carroll has signed up to the great privilege of Patreon, and you are now one of our beloved listeners and supporters. Thank you very much, Clary. Peter Funderglind, whose saint name, well, he's a saint in our eyes, but his official saint name would definitely be Peter the Glittering. Denver. That's it. Just the entirety of the city of Denver. Thank you. And then lastly for this week, David Baird. Humphrey B. Baird, ta very muchly. You are a star. And with that, we're done. Until next time, doi. Thanks for listening to History of the Netherlands. You can get detailed show notes at our website, historyofthenetherlands.com. From there, you'll be able to find other podcasts and projects that we've created. This is a production of Republic of Amsterdam Radio.